Welcome back to another episode of the Happy Astronaut Show. This episode is going to be about the Fermi Paradox. And this is actually going to be the blog that I put on my blog, johnwilliams.blog, and you can go check it out there. Um, But if you'd rather listen to me read it, then here we are. In 1950, Enrico Fermi and his buddies were sitting around during lunchtime chatting it up. They were interesting guys being physicists, and their conversations often took wild turns. Fermi, the creator of the first nuclear reactor, didn't just think about how to power the world. Like his friends, he considered the world. He asked things like, where did we come from? And where are we going? Questions like this are on the forefront of many of our top scientists' minds. Back in 1950, it was certainly on Enrico Fermi's mind. We know that because he posed one of the most fascinating questions that scientists still debate to this day. The question is simple, yet it asks so much of us. It yearns for so much information that we simply do not have. His question was, where is everybody? They weren't playing hide and seek. Nobody had accidentally hit the light switch to the break room. Fermi was talking about aliens. He figured that if the universe is so big and filled with so much stuff, shouldn't we have run into some other intelligent form of life by now? Shouldn't we have gotten a sign that we humans are not the only ones who can sense spacecrafts out into the vacuum of space? Mind you, this was 1950. Astrophysicists in these days were less aware of what lies beyond our planet. The Sputnik 1, the first probe in space, wasn't yet set to launch until 1957. No helicopters were on Mars as they are now. No probes had been sent to Jupiter. No man had set foot on the moon. In fact, no man had even been in space. Yuri Gargarin, the first man in space, wouldn't get there for another 11 years. Yet, Fermi was confident that the universe was a massive and diverse place. Despite his lack of knowledge, he knew that the probability should be high that intelligent life exists beyond our planet. He figured that with modest rocket technology, if somebody was out there, they should be here by now. Bold words. But he had a point. Now it is 2021. We know a bit more about the world around us. To understand how probable it is that intelligent life exists beyond Earth, we must determine the probability that intelligent life can even be created in the first place. And that is going to take some examination. Where did we come from? Unless you have the processing power of the computer created by Edmund Kirsch, fictional billionaire philanthropist from the Dan Brown novel Origin, you might be wondering, where did we come from? We currently know where we are. We are on Earth. Earth, as it turns out, is pretty cool. We have a sun to keep us warm, but an atmosphere to keep us safe from its UV rays. We have a moon that is big enough to create tides which circulate nutrients in our oceans, making life there possible. Uh, Apparently, that's not quite true, um, but true enough for the point to be made. We have Jupiter to protect us from the many nefarious space bits that could cause our demise. All in all, it's a good place to be. But how did we get here in the first place? Our Earth is 4,543,000,000 years old. According to scientists much smarter than I, they have determined that rocky planets such as ours could take about 500 million years to cool off. At this time, it is possible that life can begin to develop. Our oldest fossils are dated back to 3.5 billion years ago. We will move forward with the assumption that life began on Earth at that time. However, that is a big assumption. What we know is that at least 3.5 billion years ago, 
life existed here on our special planet. But it may begin sooner. What is life exactly? At the fundamental level, it is organic matter, matter containing the atom carbon, that can replicate. In 1953, shortly after Mr. Fermi asked the famous question that sparked much, much controversy, scientists James Watson and Harold Crick thought they had found something amazing. They stole some research from Rosalind Franklin that hinted at a breakthrough in, well, life. After observing her work and drawing further conclusions, Watson and Crick had discovered DNA. They realized its function as the instructions on how to make life as we know it. They went to bars and pubs, shouting at the patrons about how they had figured it out. They had figured out the key to life. How DNA came to be, though, is still a mystery. It's something we're actively trying to recreate in our labs. That same year, Stanley Miller, observed by Harold Harold Urey, devised the famous Miller-Urey experiment. With many tubes, flasks, thingamajigs, and doohickeys, Stanley Miller created what he believed was the components of an early Earth. Water, carbon dioxide, methane, and ammonia. He used electrical sparks to simulate lightning in an early Earth atmosphere. The goal was to see what would come of the primeval soup over time as energy interacted with these elements. What Miller received at the end of the week of sending sparks into some early Earth elements was fascinating. A brown liquid. This wasn't just any brown liquid, though. Within it were amino acids. Amino acids are the building blocks for proteins. Proteins are the fundamental building blocks that DNA uses to create body parts, hemoglobin, and other life stuff. We didn't know that at the time because Watson and Crick had just found out that DNA existed. But Miller knew that he had learned something valuable. He had created organic molecules that we know are essential for life out of seemingly nothing. From this experiment, the term abiogenesis was used more often to discuss the most probable way that life began. Organic molecules being created from the atoms that existed on early Earth. As we learned more about Earth, we soon came to realize that Miller's initial experiment was flawed. We learned that ammonia and methane were most likely not present in early Earth as they are in his experiment. We had to go back to the drawing board. Abiogenesis is not the only theory for the origin of life. In 1969, the year Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon, an amazing discovery was made that pointed the origin of life conversation in another direction. A meteorite, a meteorite named Murchison fell in Australia. Upon examination, 80 amino acids, 20 of which are essential for life, were identified as components of the spacefaring rock. The origin of life scientists then began to ask, did life arrive here from outer space? Despite this new hypothesis that had gained a lot more traction after Murchison, Miller had not given up his original abiogenesis hypothesis. He tried his experiment again in 1983 with what we believed were the correct early Earth elements. However, his redo was unsuccessful at producing the amino acids observed in his first experiment. Miller figured his initial findings were a fluke. So did the rest of the scientific community. That was until 2007, when chemist Jeffrey Bada ran another version of the Miller-Urey spark discharge experiment. Bada realized that Miller's 1983 experiment was yielding nitrites. 
these nitrites were destroying the amino acids upon formation. Bada knew that primitive earth would have contained iron and carbonate minerals. These components would neutralize nitrites and maybe, just maybe, confirm Miller's original hypothesis. He completed the experiment with a new result. He got the same watery, aminoless liquid that Miller got in 1983, except this time there were amino acids, and a lot of them. Isn't that great? Aren't you excited that we know that the building blocks of the building blocks of life can be created in a simulated early Earth environment with test tubes in a lab? I am too, except for the part where DNA isn't made of proteins. It is even made of amino acids. DNA is made of the sugar deoxyribose and some other stuff. The transmitter for DNA, RNA, is made of the sugar ribose. We have yet to devise an experiment that simulates early Earth that also produces these molecules. All we can do is create the building blocks for proteins, which need DNA and RNA to be useful at all. That means that we are missing something crucial. We are missing the one thing that would unlock many doors of understanding of where we came from. The molecule that is the origin of life. Oxford professor Richard Dawkins wrote a monumental book called The Selfish Gene in 1976. This was in between Miller's experiments. It was also before people had debunked the original Miller-Urey experiment. Dawkins even references the experiment's success. In the book, he also coined the term meme that we should all be quite familiar with today. That's not relevant information. It's just fun. In this book, Dawkins discussed an idea called the replicator. Dawkins was aware of our insufficient evidence of the fundamental elements of life. That being said, it is accepted that since life replicates, the fundamental element of life must be a thing that replicates. So what is that thing? Origin of life scientists find themselves in between a few theories at the moment. Some find themselves in the RNA first camp, believing that RNA is the first replicator. Others find themselves in the pre-RNA camp, convinced that something might be able to replicate before RNA needs to form. The most moving theory to date is the small molecule paradigm. To save you some boredom, it has no evidence backing its claims. Yet. The reality of the situation is we don't know a lot when it comes to the origin of life. And here I am trying to speculate that we are not alone in the universe. To my credit, we do know one thing. That organic molecules like amino acids can be created from atoms in early Earth environments. We also know that Earth is old. It's 4.5 billion years old. It's one-third of the age of the universe itself. Miller ran his spark discharge experiment for one week. That's like a lot less than 4.5 billion years. Who knows what could happen in that time? How much opportunity is there for life to develop? Enrico Fermi knew that the universe was big. He also knew that it was filled with a whole bunch of stuff. Some of this stuff might harbor intelligent life. But the question is, how much stuff is there? When the Fermi paradox was first postulated, Enrico and the science community at large hadn't even found one planet outside of our solar system. Yet, they knew space was most likely filled with them. Today, we have found over 3,000 planets outside of our solar system. And this is just what we have found since 1995, when the first exoplanet, which is a planet outside of our solar system, was found. Many of them are rocky, like our Earth. Many of them are within the habitable zone 
of a familiar-looking star, which is a possible indicator that life can exist there. To be specific, 53 planets of the confirmed 3,000 have signs of habitability. That's 1.8%. That might not seem like a lot when represented as a percentage, but what if we multiply that across the entire Milky Way galaxy? Each star in our Milky Way galaxy is expected to have 1.6 planets swirling around it, with around 100 billion to a possible 400 billion. That means there's a lot of planets out there. If we take the 160 total billion planets and multiply it by our 1.8% figure, how many of these planets may be habitable? The answer is 2.88 billion potentially habitable planets. To put that into perspective, if you were to count to 1 billion starting now, it would take you 95.1 years. That's just how many habitable planets might be within our own galaxy. But the Milky Way isn't the only galaxy. The known universe is 92 billion light years in diameter. The Hubble telescope imaging has estimated that within the unfathomable volume of the universe, there are possibly two trillion galaxies. If we assume that each galaxy on average has the same number of stars and planets orbiting their stars as ours, how many habitable planets may there be? 5.76 times 10 to the 21st power. In normal people speak, that is 5.76 sextillion. Or are you counting for 548 billion years? Or are you counting for 39,636 universe lifetimes? I would argue that's enough possible habitable planets to warrant some speculation. The numbers I've stated are not within our understanding. They're also probably off high or low from reality by large orders of magnitude. But one could argue that even if I'm off by a lot, the number of possible habitable planets in the known universe is still staggering. Enrico Fermi had a point. Where is everybody? How much time does it take for intelligent life to form? The key word here is intelligent. There are 1.5 millimeter animals called tardigrades that can survive in the vacuum of space, live to tell the tale, inseminate their partner, and have tiny tardigrade offspring afterwards. However, tardigrades did not invent telescopes, spacecrafts, and pizza. We, as pizza-inventing homo sapiens, would not survive in such harsh conditions. We must again assume, on the little information we have about life, that the planet must be a rocky and habitable place for smart weaklings like us to evolve. From the little we know about the origin of life, Homo sapiens possibly took 3.5 billion years to develop on Earth after the first life form existed on Earth. This is if we go with any of the replicator-type hypotheses outlined earlier. I also mentioned that scientists claim a rocky planet cools down enough and forms an atmosphere suitable for harboring life after about 500, 500 million years. Those being the knowns, or at least the good enoughs, then we can hypothesize that intelligent life requires at most, 4 billion years to develop on a rocky and habitable planet. In a less habitable world, where there is no Jupiter to protect the rocky planet from bombardment, and life must keep re-evolving to more complex states, it could take longer. In more ideal conditions, where a meteor didn't wipe out almost the entire living population, and a Cambrian explosion type event happened sooner, it could take less. 
I'd say that in the universe with 5.76 sextillion possible habitable planets where intelligent life takes at most less than one third of the age of the universe to develop, there should be more intelligent life out there. We might not even have to look that far. Life might be right next door. Do we know that life exists beyond Earth? We all know Elon Musk's obsession with Mars. Some people on Twitter might disagree with him that space is even worth exploring. However, we are humans. We explore. It's kind of our thing. From the expanses beyond the continent of Africa to setting foot on the moon, people are obsessed with finding out what is around us. And Mars is a fascinating place to look for many reasons. Mars is the fourth planet from our sun. It's just beyond Earth. It's within the habitable zone of the sun. The the temperatures there are reasonable. In the summer months, in the lower latitudes, the surface temperature may even get to about 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Although the average is about negative 81 degrees Fahrenheit. Mars orbits the sun in 687 Earth days. That was a random piece of information. What's not is the fact that the Mars Sol, or the Mars day, is only 40 minutes longer than the Earth day. That means none of the surfaces are exposed to the sun for long durations of time, which could cause temperatures to become not habitable. There is even water there right now. We know there is some frozen in the polar ice caps. There may even be some liquid water beneath the surface. When we observe the surface of Mars, we see a surface that once had branching streams, flowing rivers, basins, and deltas from flowing liquid. We even see possible lake formations that were created by rainstorms flooding dense in the planet's surface. If liquid water was present, Mars must have had a thick atmosphere capable of maintaining liquid water at Martian temperatures and pressures before the atmosphere was lost to space. Mars is also abundant in carbon, which we know from the spark discharge experiments of Miller-Urey are key to forming amino acids. Amino acids, we know, are key to building proteins. Proteins, we know, are key to building life. That means if abiogenesis is possible, it probably happened on Mars given the signs and potential former conditions. However, if intelligent life existed on the planet, it is either long gone, migrated here to Earth and became us, or went somewhere else and there are no signs of it. However, if we can find signs of life on Mars, our hope for finding life out there, and the possibility of intelligent life goes up. Mars is fun to talk about because it's so obvious. NASA and Elon have set their sights on the planet and plan to put boots on the ground by the 2030s. As great as Mars is, we must not forget about one of of our other cosmic neighbors, Venus. Venus is the rocky planet before us in the order of the solar system. Right now, it sucks. You really wouldn't want to go there. Even if you were double-dog dared to, I wouldn't suggest you did. It has a carbon dioxide atmosphere 90 times as thick as Earth's. Its surface temperatures reach up to 864 degrees Fahrenheit, and there's almost no water vapor to cool you off. Not fun. But models suggest that it once may have been habitable. For 2 billion years, Venus may have had a shallow liquid water ocean in habitable surface temperatures. This could have been when the sun was 30% dimmer than it is now. Unfortunately, we can't see the surface of Venus easily. Its thick carbon dioxide atmosphere gets in the way. Ten Soviet probes have landed on the yellow planet. The pictures they have sent back of it show a rocky surface with minimal visibility. 
but it once might have been home to an alien Marriott hotel chain. We really don't know. This is actually one of my favorite pictures in the blog. It's a picture of the surface of Venus, and you just see some red rocks and like this yellow thick fog. And you could see about, I don't know, maybe 100 yards. It's, it's really a fascinating picture. But with the potential for life seemingly all around us, does intelligent life exist? And if so, how much is out there? What is the probability that intelligent life exists beyond Earth? People much smarter than I have tried to calculate the probability that intelligent life exists. Guys like Princeton researchers David Spiegel and Edwin, Edwin Turner created one of a few different equations that might give us the probability of extraterrestrials hanging out somewhere. Their equation is based mainly on abiogenesis. They consider the metrics required to calculate how probable abiogenesis is in worlds that are conducive to it. From there, their formula considers how many of these worlds may exist. They use a Bayesian statistic analysis to do so. If you don't know what Bayesian statistics is, just watch an episode of the game show, Let's Make a Deal with Monty Hall. Now, Bayesian statistics might not be the best way to analyze this information, but I'll speak about that in a later show. Search for extraterrestrial intelligence researcher Frank Drake came up with a simpler approach to estimating how many civilizations may exist. His equation only accounts for the Milky Way. It also doesn't calculate for how often abiogenesis occurs. Instead, he just considers how often life actually appears, no matter how it got there. His take is a is an equation with a whole bunch of variables, and I'm not necessarily going to go through each of them, but pretty much they're all the variables that we talked about earlier, and none of which are known. Unfortunately for David, Edwin, and Frank, we know almost none of the variables to input into their equations. Frank Drake estimates that there are 10,000 civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy alone, but as we know, this may be far from accurate. The odds seem high, however, that intelligent life exists out there. So, why haven't we met any aliens? Michael Hart, astrophysicist and white supremacist, that's not relevant information, but somebody should mention it, explored the Fermi paradox in detail in a paper he published in 1975. He detailed four arguments for why we haven't met any aliens yet. He argued that intelligent life exists, but there are reasons we haven't encountered them yet. Number one, there is some physical difficulty about long-range space travel that is making it impossible for aliens to reach Earth. You might think that space travel is easy despite the distance. What's the big deal, right? Once you're going, there's no wind resistance. You don't even need to have powerful rockets because you can just slingshot around a planet to propel yourself to incredible speeds. The thing is that space isn't as safe as you think it is. One speck of dust, quite literally, can blow up your entire craft. That's if you're traveling at only 20% the speed of light. To get to Alpha Centauri, the nearest star system to Earth, that would take about 26.25 years. To traverse the stretches of the galaxy worth exploring, an extraterrestrial would need to travel much faster. That would make that speck of dust significantly more dangerous. Unlike Fermi's claims, intelligent life might need more than just modest rocket, mod, modest rocket technology excuse me, to get to us. Number two, aliens just, just decided that Earth wasn't a cool destination. That's a fair point. We are pretty cool, but if you can travel across the entire universe, you might have found other places more, more worthwhile to visit. Why come to Earth if there are just a whole bunch of semi-evolved monkeys who can't even get off their own planet? 
Number three, advanced civilizations arose too recently to have the technology to reach us. We Homo sapiens have only been around in our current state for 75,000 years. That is a tiny blip on the cosmic clock. Imagine an intelligent species needs only 5,000 more years of technological advancement to reach us. People will never get the chance to see them, even though on a cosmic level, they're close to having the ability. It took us one-third of the universe's existence to evolve. With it possibly taking so long for intelligent life to exist, we might just have to wait a bit longer until an intelligent species reaches us. The percent chance that our evolutionary timescales lined up in such a way to meet at this moment could be low. Number four, aliens are here. We just haven't seen them yet. They could just have a little outpost on Jupiter or something. Maybe they're hiding in that big red, red circle on its surface that we keep thinking is a giant storm. But really, it's just an eyeball, eyeball staring at us from afar, making sure we are safe or waiting for our demise. I've thought about this a bit, as you can probably tell. I like Hart's arguments, even though I don't like the fact that he is a white supremacist. But again, neither here nor there. I personally believe that the odds are in the favor of extraterrestrials existing somewhere. When I consider some of the incentives of space travel, I came up with a couple of my own conclusions as to why we haven't seen any intelligent life yet. Number five, if aliens can travel across the universe, they just may be able to travel out of it. There is this theory bouncing around astrophysicists, astrophysics that argues the universe may not be the only one to exist. That means multiple worlds, maybe parallel worlds. The possibilities of places to go here in our universe are staggering. There's a lot to see in our home world. The percent chance an intelligent life form can sift through all the possible planets, find us, and get to us is probably low. If you add in another dimension, like multiple universes, it becomes easy to argue that aliens might just be preoccupied exploring other worlds entirely. Number six, maybe they're just reading and daydreaming. If you have enough information to travel across the universe into other universes, you probably have learned a lot about why you are here. Maybe their days of exploration are over. Maybe, just like many things in life, exploring the universe loses its appeal. They'd rather just be at home with a good book, learning how to be happy. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. It was a lot of fun. I do like this format, reading the blogs that I've written. And if you want to see these blogs and you prefer to read rather than listen to me, you can go to my blog, johnwilliams.blog. I typically write about space exploration, um, you know, how to live a good life, health and fitness because that's my career and every once in a while technology but that's the episode i appreciate you guys for jumping in and have a great night